Hey, peeps, this week has been a technical and health-related shit show. I could try to rework this episode yet again, but I feel like you will never get to hear it if I delay anymore. So you may notice that this app is not quite up to my normal snuff. For that, I apologize in advance. Okay, without further ado, episode 4, Tupac and Biggie. This is It's All Relative, and the fourth episode about the lives and deaths of Tupac Shakur and Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G. Please put your fingers in your ears immediately if you are easily offended or just don't want to hear gory details or profanity. You do realize this is a true crime podcast, right? If you are a friend of the pod, you know that I try to get at the core of the people in the cases I cover. I want to bring out the why the fuck did this happen part of the case. Because if we don't understand how this shit happens, we are doomed to a cycle of repetition. While I am not sure you can ever truly know anyone, ever, I do now have a better idea of the main players in this tale, and my heart is in little shattered pieces for the victims and victimized. We will start the episode with a song from Tupac, and I will see you on the other side. Well, let me show you how it affects our whole community. Now, Brenda really never knew a mom's, and a dad was a junkie putting death into his arms. It's sad, cause I bet Brenda doesn't even know. Just cause you're in the ghetto doesn't mean you can't grow. But oh, that's a vote, my own revelation. Do whatever it takes to resist the temptation. Brenda got herself a boyfriend. Her boyfriend was a cousin, now let's watch the joy. And she tried to hide a pregnancy from a family who really didn't care to see or give a damn if she went out and had a church of kids. As long as when the check came, they got first dips. Now Brenda's belly's getting bigger, but no one seems to notice any change in her figure. She's 12 years old and she's having a baby. In love with the molester who's sex and a crazy. And yet, and also thinks that'll be with her forever. And dreams of a world with the two of them are together. Both Tupac and Big now have contracts based on their untouchable talents. Both young men now have the finances and the power to take care of the people they love and to feel the respect their mothers promised them they deserved. Both Biggie and Tupac had come up in the hood. Tupac never had two nickels to rub together, and he never got to stay in one place long enough to put down roots. So he made every place he lay his head his corner, his stoop. Tupac was likable, and he could slide into most situations like a chameleon. But the people who he would consider in his circle were few and mostly family. His mother drilled into him the importance of his being a leader and being a mentor, so he felt the push to do great things with his talents. Chris's childhood was surrounded with people who lived and died within a few block radius. These were people who, like Tupac, lived off whatever they could scrape together and ran a hustle just to stay alive. But Chris himself always had plenty of everything. His mother made sure of that. He also had a keen knowledge that he used to watch out for his friends, neighbors, and his family. The problem was that in many ways, these men were still boys. Their whole world had been relatively small, and they had never truly had to deal with someone who was working directly against them or deal with a wolf in sheep's clothing. And signing those contracts immediately put them smack in the middle of a world where having an angle to get ahead is not only par for the course, Stepping over literal bodies to use that angle is a regular occurrence. Ray's father called me. He didn't want a son rapping. 
and he didn't want me to let him be in my upcoming shows. And he said, we come from a family of entertainers. You know, Ray's grandfather is Cab Calloway. And he said that it was not okay for me to make a decision. And he was Ray's father, and he knew what was best for his son. And he said that Ray and Pac were not spiritually developed enough to handle the responsibility and the attention they would get. Ray's father was saying that in terms of what it does to a person to get attention too fast and to have fame too fast and to not have your connection to God and your spirituality, it would cost them their lives. It would cost Pac his life even more so than Ray. And then, you know, things happened as fast as he said they would and then the guys weren't listening to me at all. They were really telling me what to do, which is exactly what Ray's father said would happen. And that was Lila Steenberg again in the Thug Angel documentary. Tupac's first contract signing had been foiled at 15 by Afini. She said he was too young. Now, Ray's father was saying the same thing. The boys were not ready. Chris's mom, Valletta, did not get a chance to make an assessment of Big because he kept his street life secret. One of my friends bought your album and they told me it, it is wrecking with profanity. Christopher, is it true? Ma! What are you doing listening to my music? You're not supposed to be listening to my music. It's for nobody over 35 years old. Uh-oh. I stayed the hell away from his music. I said, you know what? He told me don't listen to it. I'm not going to listen to it. Basically, she don't give a fuck about none of that shit. I ain't Biggie. I'm her son, you know what I'm saying? That's how she look at it. Like, my mom didn't really know about everything, everything, you know what I'm saying? I don't know what he was out there doing. He told me he was working. I believed him. And that was from the doc, Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell. I wonder, however, if she had been given the chance, she might have said the same thing. He wasn't ready. Chris himself admitted he was shy and quiet. What was your life like as a child? I was just... Were you shy? Were you outgoing? No, I'm still shy. I'm a quiet dude, right? Oh, yeah? Yeah, I kind of get the voice, say the things I want to say in my music. And he automatically deferred to Mr. C on making his career decisions. Tupac enters his pro-life with the same gusto he had given to all his other ventures. He goes all in. But Tupac is used to driving the bus. Granted, it was often a rusted-out bus with a knocking engine, but he always seemed to make it run. He could always convince people to jump on board, and he always seemed to get it driving in the direction he wanted to go. His link-up with the digital underground got him close to his goal. A contract. Stardom. But he isn't nabbed up right away. My guess is that the music execs were so fixated on what was selling in hip-hop, they weren't able to consider evolution. We'll talk about that more when we get back to Biggie. Oh, and if you aren't grokking on who the digital underground is, here's a reminder. So just let me introduce myself. My name is Humpty. Pronounce with the Humpty. Yo, ladies. I remember once when he thought the sound man was messing up the show. Pac took it personal and ran up on the sound man and said, yo. He tried to beat up the sound man. Fuck the sound up. He went to swing on him and our manager grabbed him. He didn't realize the sound man's friend was getting ready to hit him with something, so I had to grab him. We were like, yo, Pac, you know, you can't. Beat up the sound man. He hit that sound man when he didn't understand it. That wasn't just our sound man. That was the sound man for the whole G Street tour. But he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know how many times I fired Pop? 
fuck that. I wasn't, you weren't supposed to sing right there. He's the singer. You're a rapper. You don't want him singing over your parts. Fuck that. I knew you was going to say that. We were losing the crowd right there. We had to do something. He wasn't singing that shit right. You wouldn't know. You're not a singer. Fuck that. You sending me home? Yeah, I'm sending you home. Fuck that. Pox off the tour. It would be living like that, almost fighting. Two hours later, knock, knock. Yo, what's up? Let's go get some hoes. <laughs> you know? In the meantime, word gets to the tour that there was a casting call out on a character in an upcoming movie called Juice. They wanted Money B to read for it. Tupac tagged along to the audition, and Money B notices that the other character in the script, that of Bishop, reminded him of Pac. He tells Pac that he should read for that part. From the authorized biography of Tupac Shakur, quote, In our minds, if it all worked out, I'd have been Steele, Tupac would have been Bishop, Money B recalled. Treach would have been Q. We would have been real friends being friends in the movie, which would have been dope, end quote. This is not what happened, but Pac got the part. A bit like Star Wars, no one knew what that movie, Juice, was going to be. All the actors got paid a pittance, but it became a cult hit. Along with Tupac, this movie helped launch the careers of Queen Latifah, Omar Epps, and Samuel L. Jackson. The Rodney King riots broke out in the middle of filming. Teen Latasha Harlins was shot over a bottle of juice that cost less than $2 and a newborn was thrown in the trash by its mother. Tupac was deep in the emotions of it all, and the result was Brenda's got a baby. But Pac got a deal, and Brenda's got a baby became iconic, touching so many people, especially young minority girls who lived with their own version of Brenda every day of their lives. You have to understand, all of us olds have to remember, a time before the internet made everything available at the touch of a phone screen. If your music wasn't on the radio, there was almost no way your career would be anything of note. That's what made the record execs so shocked. This record that Tupac had made was selling like hotcakes, and none of it was on the freaking radio. The album went gold in 1995. Like Raymond Chandler, Tupac knew how to put words together. He knew how to make words flow, but it was his message that really touched the soul of his listeners. But then, politics and bureaucracy got involved. Quote, In August of 92, the presidential race in America started heating up as Tupac settled into his Los Angeles home. It was the culmination of a long summer of public outcry. The pressure on record labels had grown intense. Questions began swirling in Time Warner's boardroom about what might be done to rein in their artists and mollify critics. At first, Tom Whaley and Ted Field held their ground, proud to support artists and their right to express themselves free of this kind of censorship. But Interscope was an independent company distributed by Atlantic Records, and Atlantic was a division of Time Warner, and while they resisted the pressure for a while, they ultimately had to align with Atlantic's parent company. Atron remembers the final clampdown delivered during a meeting led by Mo Osteen, head of Warner Brothers Music. Atron was there. Osteen explained that Warner had to consider its shareholders first and foremost, and so he told them, going forward, the company would not distribute any records containing lyrics with themes of violence against police. Plus, any label or artist under the Time Warner umbrella would have to submit all lyrical content for approval before the product was released to market. Osteen told the artists that he respected their work, but the company just couldn't take the risk. Ultimately, Ice-T, whose cop killer was at the center of the controversy, took matters into his own hands. 
he decided to pull Cop Killer off the shelves and continued to maintain that the song was his protest record and that he was just misunderstood. He explained in a press conference that the song is not a call to murder police. This song is about anger and the community and how people get that way. Tupac's first album, Tupaclips Now, would not be withdrawn, but the new dictum would directly affect songs Tupac had already recorded for his new album, still tentatively called Troublesome 21. Tom and Atron had to inform him that the album would have to be rethought, and some songs would need to be re-recorded. At first, Tupac was furious, but he finally agreed to rethink a couple of songs. He even made light of it one afternoon in, the studio, in a studio session that was being recorded on video around that time. Interscope chose to support Tupac in any way it could, including by writing a check to cover the new costs. And yet, even as Tupac made the tweaks Warner requested, he refused to accept the argument that his rap lyrics or his performance in Juice promoted violence. All that Iran-Contra stuff, that war, that's violence to me, that's real violence, he told an interviewer that year. What we're rapping, it happens in the streets. What we're doing is using our brain to get out of the ghetto any way we can. So we tell these stories and then tend to be violent because our world tends to be filled with violence. Ice-T's withdrawal of Cop Killer from Body Count's record ended up providing Time Warner with little relief from the public outcry. By September of that year, spurred by Ronald Ray Howard's defense claims that Tupac's music had played a role in his crime, Vice President Quayle had shifted his target from Ice-T to Tupac. In the campaign trail section of the September 23rd issue of the New York Times, the headlines read, On Quayle's List, A Rapper and a Record Company. The article reported on comments Quayle had made while he met with the daughter of slain highway patrolman Bill Davidson in Houston in which he accused Interscope and Time Warner of committing an irresponsible corporate act by promoting and distributing Tupacalypse Now. There is absolutely no reason for a record like this to be published by a responsible corporation, said Quayle. I am suggesting that Time Warner's subsidiary, Interscope Records, withdraw this record. It has no place in our society. Congressional agitation was one thing. The sitting vice president calling the company on the carpet was another. Interscope's publicist, Lori Earle, remembers. As soon as he, Tupac, started drawing the ire of politicians, then of course that flagged Time Warner. And so I was in between these two, telling Time Warner to calm down and also trying to explain him to them, and to their credit, they backed him up. They paid for lawyers to come in and help him. It was, in many ways, a dark and frustrating time, personally and professionally. The tragic death of young Cade Walker Teal in Marin City continued to weigh heavily on Tupac's mind, and now Quayle's public broadside and the restrictions from Time Warner meant that he would have to compromise his art, the very essence of his self-expression. He had said publicly that his lyrics were written solely as a reaction to an unjust society. In my music, and a lot of this music, it's only talking about the oppressed rising up against the oppressor, so the only people that's scared are the oppressors. The only people who have any harm coming to them are those who oppress. But now, with these restrictions always in the back of his mind while he wrote in his notebooks, he felt frustrated that he could no longer be an unfiltered voice for those who felt forgotten, those who are constantly abused and harassed by the police. Now he could no longer fully express himself in the raw and uncut way he wanted to, without the white man's approval. End quote. Just to put this in some perspective, Aerosmith released the highly deviating from their norm song, Janie's Got a Gun, in 1989. At the time, most songs didn't get played on the radio if they had overt sex or violence in them. 
artists would have to release a keen version for anyone to hear it without buying the record. So I was shocked that this song, Janie's Got a Gun, which told the story of incest and the subsequent murder of the abuser, was playing on the radio several times a day. Not saying I didn't like the song, it was just not the kind of thing you'd hear played at the time. What I don't remember is any hue and cry over the topic sung about. And doing a Goog search now only brings up the tale behind the lyrics and the foundation Aerosmith set up. Not a word about anyone having a problem with the lyrics themselves. And yet, black people be singing about the realities of their life and the anger at the system? Dan Quayle throws a hissy. Jesus Christ. This was the first chink in Tupac's armor. Tupac had been raised to be a revolutionary. Unlike his mother, Tupac had always had people to support him. I know it's not that simple, but generally, Afini filled his head with lofty goals. Don't get me wrong here, those goals are worthy. But lofty goals, nonetheless, and Tupac's forceful nature could always get people on his side. Even this time, with the record company telling him he couldn't do what he wanted to do, he still thought he was going to make it work, that he would ultimately get what he wanted. But he wouldn't. Christopher Wallace did not have the same problem. He loved to make music, and just being able to do that was all he needed, along with the paycheck, of course. So it didn't matter to him what he was rapping about. If the music industry wanted him to make music about fucking this and shooting that, who was he to say no? Whatever it took to make bank. Once Big got into making music professionally, his mind started moving. From It Was All a Dream, quote, Just after the 1992 Billboard Awards, Dr. Dre and Death Row Records released The Chronic. And as a result of the album, Snoop Dogg's upcoming solo debut almost instantly became the most anticipated project since, well, The Chronic. Death Row Records didn't just hit the ground running, they were in an all-out sprint. Nearly 3,000 miles east in Brooklyn, Big was paying attention to Death Row's movement. He loved the energy, and to be honest, he loved the style of West Coast music as a whole. He loved Two Short's Freaky Tales for its X-rated musings, and there was another guy who lived in California named Tupac Shakur, whose music was so violent, so political, and yet so transparently soulful that it drew him in almost immediately. Big loved that graphic music, whether it be sexual or depictions of life on the street. But in the start of 1993, the focus of hip-hop was no longer in New York. It was still the Mecca, but it was clear now that great rap could come from a multitude of locations. Rap grew from the Black Experience, and the Black Experience took place all across the country. Big was inspired. Big's songs sounded as if they were recorded on a Brooklyn street corner or in a Raleigh trap house, in part because that's where they were born. The West Coast, though, was on fire in 1993, so the logic was to soak up all that energy and try to create a fan base out West, end quote. So, in 1993... Uptown heads out to L.A., hoping to broaden his fan base and hopefully work up a collaboration. Quote, almost immediately, he, Big, 
fell in love with the women, the weed, and the weather. Los Angeles' speed appeared to mesh well with the laid-back biggie. I just think that everybody out here think that all East Coast rappers is like Tim Dog, and we all about dissin'. It ain't about that, Big said. We got flavor, just like they got flavor, he said. We need to get together. Outside Big's inner circle and the borough of Brooklyn, there wasn't a person in America who loved Big's hit, Party and Bullshit, more than Tupac Shakur. The legendary filmmaker John Singleton once recalled Shakur playing the song on a loop for hours while they sat in a limo. You heard this shit yet? Shakur asked Singleton. They were working on the director's new film, Poetic Justice, starring Shakur and pop superstar Janet Jackson. When Pac heard that Big, the architect behind his current favorite song, was in town, he headed directly to the Sheraton Hotel in Studio City. It was almost as if from the moment they saw each other in person that first time, the two Gemini twins. Pac, born in June 1971 and Big 11 months later, became instant friends, end quote. But we need to back up just a bit. Because Pac had started to change. California had not done Tupac any favors. In 1991, this is before Rodney King, Tupac was crossing the street on his way to the bank. Quote from his biography. But before he got there, two Oakland police officers, Kevin Rogers and Alexander Boyevich, stepped in front of him, blocking his path. They asked Tupac for identification as one of the officers flipped open his ticket book. They told him they were going to cite him for jaywalking. Tupac was incredulous. They were sweating me for jaywalking, and I swear you, I don't even know what jaywalking is, he later recalled. Tupac asked why they were charging him with such a petty crime and explained that he was with the group Digital Underground and that they were already inside the bank. He further explained that he was just there to withdraw money from his account and handed one of the officers his driver's license and two additional forms of identification. The officer laughed as he stared at his ID. Tupac, the officer mocked. What your mother name you that for? Tupac exploded with defiance. Man, fuck the police. Give me my citation. One of the officers put Tupac in a chokehold and threw him on the ground. Tupac yelled at them. This is not slavery and you're not my masters. Master, Rogers said. I like the sound of that. Then he pommeled Tupac's head into the sidewalk. Tupac recounted the incident in a press conference weeks later. My spirit was broke. Because after I made consciousness again, they kept joking about, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, because I couldn't breathe. The breath was taken from me. The cops hauled the disoriented and bloodied Tupac off the ground and shoved him into the back of the squad car. It would be seven full hours before he was taken from a holding cell to receive medical attention. But worse than the bruises were the scars the incident would leave on his soul. Afini had always feared something like this would happen to her son. She explains this as a rite of passage of sorts. After he had been beaten by the Oakland police, that changed Tupac. Young black men go through that process where they get great anger at the reality of life for a young black male. And as he lay with his head smashed into the pavement on the streets of Oakland, he saw clearly that the war his mother had long fought had come for him. Weeks later, Tupac hired Oakland-based civil rights attorney John Burris to file a $10 million civil lawsuit against the Oakland police. In an interview, Tupac explained exactly what he would do if he was granted any money as a result of the claim. If I win, I get the money, he said. The Oakland Police Department is going to buy a boy's home, me a house, my family a house, and a stop police brutality center. The claim was later resolved with a settlement. The payout was a mere $42,000, end quote. At this point, Pac had already developed a complex of sorts. 
he had realized that black men generally were not making it much past age 25, and he felt that he was due to die early. After the attack and slap-in-the-face settlement, Pack started collecting and carrying guns. He also became more and more confrontational. In 1993, while he is in Atlanta visiting his mother, Pac drives by a beatdown, some white guys beating on a black man. He stops the car and goes to help the man on the ground. The white man drew guns. Pac draws his gun. The white men are shot. Pac is arrested. The men turn out to be cops. They're off-duty cops. But it is very lucky Pac had people in the car with him. With witness corroboration, it is discovered that the two cops were definitely off-duty, drunk, and using guns they had stolen from the evidence locker. The charges against Pac were dropped, but the almost bipolar nature of his personality was swinging wider and higher. So back at this spontaneous meeting of Pac and Big, Big and his entourage of junior mafia fame ended up back at Pac's L.A. home. Quote, from it was all a dream. But Pac once again retreated out of sight, only to return moments later with a gigantic green army bag, the contents of which he proceeded to dump on the floor. It was a show-and-tell type of movement. More than 25 guns hit the floor, ranging from handguns to Tech 9s. So now, here we are, in this backyard, running around with guns just playing, Smalls said. Luckily, they were all unloaded. It was a moment of pure innocence, even if the actual arms were involved. Big and Pac ran around the backyard, all but playing cops and robbers, like grown little kids. From the moment they first met, there was an intense brotherly love between Pac and Big that lit up a room. They laughed, they cracked jokes, and they enjoyed each other's company. In this very moment, the possibilities of their friendship were limitless. Pac left the organized chaos a tad early because he was on to his next task. Cooking. Much in the same vein of Big, Shakur loved making sure everyone around him was in good spirits. We were drinking and smoking. All of a sudden, Pac was like, yo, come get it, Smalls said. We go into the kitchen and he had steaks and french fries and bread and Kool-Aid. We just sitting there eating and drinking and laughing. Pac and Biggie, Lou sighed to me as we spoke on the phone, were like brothers. For Big, life felt like it was finally coming together, end quote. In the bid for fame, both Pac and Chris knew there was a role to play. Gangsta was a style that sold hip-hop. So this is what the execs wanted them to portray. Tupac was a consummate actor, so playing the part was a cinch. At some point, though, what was an act and what was real became a very blurry separation. For Christopher, there was no bleed of one into the other. Quote, Even as the notoriety around his name began to rise and people in other cities began to recognize the name of the notorious B.I.G. or Biggie Smalls, Christopher Wallace was still Christopher Wallace. Like that one time in 1993 when he, DJ Premier, and Jeru had a show in Virginia. We were real hungry and Big was sitting in his hotel with no clothes in a bucket of chicken, clipping his toenails, said Premier. Jeru said, you need to stop eating that. My name is Biggie, he responded, not Raw Kim, end quote. Tupac and Biggie are now kings of rap, but one thing that is certain about being king, someone will always be there to try to knock you off your throne. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, and don't forget to like, rate, and review. Tell a friend. No, really. Tell three.
Patreon, and contact details are in the show notes. Biggie, of course, will send you on your way, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Cars and still leave you on the pavement. Condo paid for, uh, no car payments. Uh, uh, At my arraignment, no for the plaintiff. The daughter's tied up in the Brooklyn basement. Face it, not guilty. That's how I stay still. Richer than richer, so you niggas come and get me. Come on. Biggie, biggie, Uh-huh. Guess is why they're broken, you're so... Uh-huh.